When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big and therefore we should. Doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. And this podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Radhika Dut, co-founder of the Radical Product Thinking Movement. When I was building my own startups, I made many mistakes and I learned from these mistakes. And I also worked at companies where they were making similar mistakes and rarely there were companies that weren't making these mistakes. We have come to believe that, you know, the way you build products is just through iteration, like try something, try something else. And that's really how you build products. And what was driving me was, and does it have to be that way? Because what happens is you keep pivoting and you lose momentum along the way. So does it have to be that way? Or can we build products that are successful more systematically? And that's how radical product came into being. Radical product thinking means that you can think of anything as your product, that your product is really a mechanism to create change. And so, you know, whatever change you're trying to bring about in the world, you can build a product that is engineering that change. This is Radhika. She's a product development executive and entrepreneur. She participated in four exits, two of which were companies she founded. She's a global citizen having lived and worked in four continents, speaks nine languages and has an engineering background from MIT. She is the author of the Radical Product blog, which is also the name of her movement of leaders creating vision-driven change. Radical product thinking is a systematic approach for cultivating change makers in our organization and building world-changing products. And this triggered me, hence I invited Radhika to my podcast. We explore some of the common mistakes made in product management and software development. And we also discuss how radical product thinking can be the recipe for any software company to become remarkable at what they do and thereby deliver an impact they've never held possible before. By listening to this podcast, you will learn three things. Firstly, that iteration is a very good concept in software development as long as you know what your North Star is. Secondly, our product market fit is not the holy grail. The big question is, if that product market fit is creating the change that you intended to create in the first place. If not, question your vision. And thirdly, how focusing your solution on someone rather than everyone is going to give you the focus to deliver real impact. So Radhika, thank you very much for joining my podcast today and making a time available to tell the world about the vision that you're building around radical products. Thanks for having me on, Tom. 
It's a pleasure. I mean, I, I found you, I'm not sure where it was. Maybe it was another podcast, by the way, that I listened. And that's where I got intrigued and started to look at your website, radicalproduct.com. And I think we are thinking alike. I've been in the business software space for a long time. And I see a lot of the companies that I know suffering from a number of the things that you're talking about. So this is a good one to bring up and to share with the world in terms of what can be. So before we get started, it's always interesting for my audience to get you to, let, to get to know you a little bit better. So one question that's always triggering me is, what is your passion? And what, what led you, well, what, what drove you to get into this business in the first place? Yeah. So, you know, that's a really interesting question because a lot of people ask me, you know, what's your business model behind radical product thinking, right? And really very deliberately, there isn't a business model. This is designed as a movement and it's grown as a movement of leaders who are creating vision-driven products. So what drives me is, you know, when I was building my own startups, I made many mistakes and I learned from these mistakes. And I also worked at companies where they were making similar mistakes and rarely there were companies that weren't making these mistakes, right? And they were really interesting, positive experiences as well. And so what I realized was over the last 20 years, you know, a lot of what I've learned through these hard and positive lessons have, it has helped me build what I now call product intuition. And so the question for me that was driving me was, why is it that some people just are innately good product managers and others aren't? Like, is, does it have to be this innate skill or can we all just successfully build products? And, you know, what I kept seeing was in the startup world and even, even, and this is spread by the way, outside of the startup world, we tend to, now we have come to believe that, you know, the way you build products is just through iteration, like try something, try something else. And that's really how you build products. And what was driving me was, and does it have to be that way? Because what happens is you keep pivoting and you lose momentum along the way. So does it have to be that way? Or can we build products that are successful more systematically? And that's how Radical Product came into being because I met two other people, Jordi Cadiz and Nidhya Garwal. And, you know, we had kind of the, the similar hypothesis that we were thinking about. Like, can we, can we translate our intuition into practical steps for people? That's interesting. I mean, do I understand as well or do I translate as well that you say if you start with, with a very strong vision about your product, you got sort of your North Star and that then drives you to, to do the right things in order to create a, a perfect product? Maybe not always knowing what it, will, what it will look like, but at least you're going in the direction of creating that impact. Yeah, exactly. This point that you start with a clear vision is a really important one. So I think just to to rewind a little bit on product thinking and what I mean by radical product thinking, right, is that radical product thinking means that you can think of anything as your product, that your product is really a mechanism to create change. And so you know, whatever change you're trying to bring about in the world, you can build a product that is engineering that change. And so when you start thinking about your product in that way, then you have to start with a clear vision for, you know, what's the change you want to bring to the world? And then you can very systematically engineer that change. And so radical product thinking means starting with that very clear vision and then translating into a strategy 
and then into how you're going to prioritize things and then into a hypothesis driven execution and how you're going to measure it right and so that systematic approach is is what i'm really advocating for and actually people ask me very often so if you're saying you know you do this so systematically where does iteration come in right uh-huh. and so the the idea with iteration is iteration should help you it should help you get to where you want to go but it shouldn't define your destination so what i mean by that is you know your analogy of north star you should start with a clear north star and iteration basically means that you might start off following this north star and then you realize at some point oh you know what we're slightly off course and so you course correct and so yeah that's that's the piece where i mean iteration should drive you know how you get to your destination but yeah, not true. the destination itself true i recently wrote a blog about the power of disconnecting your your product from from your vision or your vision from your product and i mean what i see a lot i mean i came from the world that is about enterprise resource planning and a lot of the vendors out there have been pretty successful to a certain extent that you know they all think they are they are an enterprise resource planning provider, which of course is factually very correct. And if you're in that world, then your next release is all about, all about going about what that type of category is all about. And that's how you iterate. So you will always be busy with a lot of new features you have to create. But the question at the end is like, what is it that you, what, what is the business you are really in? You know, is that, an, is that the world of enterprise resource planning or is it, for example, the world of, helping customers grow twice as fast or helping them increase their, their profit three times. So it's like, like an outcome-driven approach. And I think if you have, don't have that, that North Star, that iteration becomes something that is like if you're going on a, on a journey without understanding where you're really going. You just take a left route and a right route. <laughs> and if, it feel, if you feel you're there, you're there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the way sometimes I describe it is, you know, you end up finding local maxima. And so, for instance, you know, the analogy I like to use is, you know, let's say you go on a road trip. When you don't have a destination you're thinking about for this road trip, you're saying, okay, I'll just start out and see what I like, right? And based on that, I'll, I'll change course. So, you might discover that, oh, I found this really nice restaurant. This was amazing food. And then, you know, okay, so you found a local maximum. But then if you just had planned your trip a little bit, maybe you would have realized that, oh, you know what, you're actually in Napa Valley. And so every single meal could have been this amazing feast, right? And so that's the kind of advanced, you know, planning and plotting your destination that's helpful. And then, you know, you should iterate as you go along and you say, you know what, I actually didn't like this area so much. It's not getting me the kind of experience that I had in mind. But you have to know what you have in mind so that you can then decide, you know, what you like or don't even. What's, and that's actually a problem with how we define success. So for instance, a lot of products, you know, when we iterate to find traction, that's kind of why we iterate. We iterate to find this product market fit, right? That's our nirvana. But just product market fit alone 
isn't necessarily what you set out to to find. You know, whether or not you're finding product market fit, that might be a local maximum. If you're not creating the change you intended to create, then you have to question your vision and say, wait a minute, okay, so maybe I should change my vision, but it has to be something that we acknowledge so that we can actually, we can acknowledge that and then decide kind of, okay, where to from here. That's true, yeah. I like your analogy with the, with the journey there and the local, the, the, <laughs> the local maximum. And the product market fit, is, that's a story in itself, I would say. That you could have a, a complete podcast on that. But it is indeed, it's all about the, your definition of yeah, what good looks like. So how does the customer come into play with this one? So how do you see that? Do you yes. define your vision before the customer or do you define the vision because of a customer? So I think, you know, so that depends kind of on the, okay, first of all, your vision is always centered on the customer. So, you know, you were, I think, saying this just a little while ago, you were talking about, well, you know, who's, I can't remember your exact words, but you were talking about, you know, this company and, you know, are you setting out to improve your customers' revenues by 3x or like, what are you setting out to do, right? Your question, I think, is one of the central points of what your vision should define. So meaning, what are you, whose world are you setting out to change? And you were saying earlier, it doesn't have to be everyone's. It has to be like a very specific group of people whose world you're setting out to change. And then, you know, a clear understanding of what does their world look like today? Why does it even need changing? Because it may very well be that it doesn't need changing, right? Let me make a small interruption here. Radhika just made an excellent remark about one of the 10 key traits remarkable software companies have to clarify who they are for and who they are not for. Combining your big idea with this sharp level of segmentation is an essential part of your value foundation. And that is one of the three big levers to grow the impact you can make. For those of you that want to know where to put your focus to become remarkable and deliver a bigger impact with your software business, simply do the test. You can find it on www.valueinspiration.com slash remarkable index. Back to the interview. And then once you've defined, you know, whose world you want to change, what their world looks like and why it needs changing, then you can say, okay, how do I envision their world? What do I want it to look like when that problem is solved? And how am I going to create that world? So that's really how detailed our vision has to be. And that's what, you know, radical product thinking, like we have a, we created a vision statement so that it's easy to write down the answers to these questions in one coherent sentence. And we did that because we want this to be a group exercise because very often, you know, product leaders or business leaders might come up with a vision and they tell the team, here's your vision, right? But then if you haven't had a chance to really kind of think through these questions, you might hear this as the vision, but you haven't had a chance to really process it and you haven't fully internalized it. And so that's one of the things that we wanted to change by creating a vision statement of the sort that you can do as a group exercise. Yeah, that's an interesting one as well. One of the things that I've learned from doing all these podcasts is it's not only to have, indeed to have the vision, but it's also the alignment of the organization. And once you get all of that in line with, with the North Star, with the vision, with the change you try to, uh, to create in the world, then you can really create some leverage. What you typically see in a lot of companies to exceed exactly that, that I work with is 
that everything is a silo, you know? It's R&D and the product management that come up with, okay, this is where we're going with the product. Then if the product is created and it's it's done. And then the, the, the point is, so here's, here's the code, it's live, and now try to sell it. And then someone else takes over. And none of that is aligned with each other. And as a consequence, every, everywhere we are dropping opportunities. Do you see that as well? Absolutely. And it's so common. And you know, it's not, it's in every size of organization as well, right? And what I've realized is that a lot of it comes from the fact that, you know, lean and agile, they're great methodologies in that they help us iterate fast, right? But because our mantra in product development has become, you build good products by iterating fast, you find that in organizations, teams are just working on iterating fast. And so you have different teams that are working on iterating fast, but not necessarily in the same direction, right? And so this is where it creates the misalignments that you were talking about. And so, you know, the way, if you were to visualize it, I often draw this as a bunch of arrows that are all pointing in different directions. And so as an organization, you have speed, but you don't necessarily have velocity. And so that's what we started working on changing. So the whole reason we designed the Radical Product Toolkit as, you know, these interactive exercises that you do with your team is so that you can create that sort of alignment. And so the idea is that you use Radical Product Thinking together with Lean and Agile. So Radical Product Thinking gives you direction by having a clear vision and strategy, and you align that with your execution. And so when you combine that with Lean and Agile, then the result is, you know, you want to get to all of these arrows all pointing in the same direction. So now you have not just speed, but you have velocity. And that's really, to your point, you know, what we see in organizations and the transformation that, you know, we design radical product thinking to create. Yeah, I can only agree with that. And I've seen such, such good examples of how it is exactly the opposite. So what do you believe is the opportunity if we get this right? So like, what is the... What is the, the, the incentive why we should all want to do this? Yeah, you know, I think, so what I find is if we want to build, you know, just small changes to an existing product, right? That's where if you're purely using iteration, that works. When you want to create small evolutionary changes. If you want to fundamentally rethink something, fundamentally change user behavior to do something. And what I call, you know, building radical products, that's where we need to do something different. And the example I like to use, right, is if you think about the two cars, the Chevy Bolt versus Tesla Model 3, I think if you compare the two, it's a great example of Chevy Bolt as you know, a product built on iteration versus Tesla as a radical product. Now, you know, if you compare the two, right, there's a really famous auto expert, Sandy Monroe, who did a teardown exercise. He basically tore down these cars and compared these two. And, you know, so he describes the Chevy Bolt saying, you know, it's, it's a great little car, right? GM basically took an existing chassis. They did what they know how to do best, which is they took a gasoline car and they basically replaced the innards of the hood with an electric vehicle. Yeah. 
If you look at the Tesla Model 3, on the other hand, you know, they really fundamentally rethought it. Let me give you an example. What I mean by that is if you look at the cooling system in the Chevy Bolt, there are three cooling systems that are all separate, one for cooling the engine, one for cooling the cabin, one for cooling the battery system. Uh-huh. If you look at the Tesla, on the other hand, they built something called the Super Bottle, which is one single system that heats and cools everything in the car from the yeah. cabin to HVAC, et cetera. You know, and this auto expert, Sandy Monroe, he was saying, this is amazing because it would be so hard to do in Detroit, you know, to get over all these fiefdoms, these organizational yeah. silos. It would just be, it's unthinkable that you would build something like the super bottle, you know, cooling system. And that's why, you know, and, and the results, by the way, after his teardown exercise, he says Tesla Model 3 is truly revolutionary. It's not inching up. Whereas the Chevy Bolt, you know, it's a good car. It's a good next evolution. And that's what we want to, like, what, what we want to build if we ask ourselves, right? Do we want to build a small iteration or do we want to build a radical product? And if your answer is that you do want to fundamentally change something in the world, that's where we need to look at it differently and not just rely on iteration alone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see it. I mean, I've, I've been part of such a, such a decision well, many of those decisions earlier in my previous life in when I was working as a head of product marketing and product management. It's sometimes, you know, you have to, you're, you're just iterating and iterating and in your mind, you know that then someone needs to pull the plug <laughs> because you're going to hit a dead end alley. And still we keep iterating because, you know, that is the easiest route forward. I mean, just to give you an example, the, the whole change from an, from an on-premise system that was there in the past to, to creating it in the cloud and making that available then to more customers and multi-tenancy and these type of things. These are all things that, well, the majority of the traditional vendors out there have done by iteration. And they are competing with the ones that were born in the cloud. And even those, those these, one, these days, the ones that, for example, were born in the cloud in 2005, they also have, have starting, started to get a, a disadvantage because of the technology evolution that has gone so fast. You know, if today you would build a system from scratch, you would do it completely different, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, the whole thing, the whole thing behind this, the, the protocol, radical product thinking is also how do you convince management to make that bold decision to say, stop, rethink what we are doing, challenge it from every angle. What would we do if we, were, we, if we had no experience with this and we would do it for the first time and then move it forward from there? Any advice on that? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point that you bring up. And I think that's a really important angle that, you know, you as product managers, we might really see the need for this, right? But unless this yeah. is something that the organization embraces, it's hard to create that transformation all by ourselves, right? Exactly. So two things that I want to address. One is, by the way, even if you don't have that complete organizational support, it is still helpful even for 
a product manager just to sit down and work through this? Like if everything were under your control, what would you do? Because at least this way, you know, where you do have control, you can start influencing people in the direction that you're, you think is necessary. But I think going back to your point about, you know, how do you get management on board, right? And this is where I talk about some of the product diseases where, you know, what you describe, I would call it locked in syndrome, yep. which is that we, we are committed, overly committed to an approach just because it's been successful in the past. And often the symptom of this disease is that, you know, we're making small iterations in the product. Very often it's based on, you know, optimizing metrics. And so we keep optimizing small details of metrics, but we don't really feel like we're moving the needle in any way, right? And that's exactly what you were describing. And I know what you mean because, you know, I've, I've seen this myself in products as well as the product manager on it. But, you know, so the reason for talking about these product diseases more openly as a group is that if we think about the learning model where you start with unconscious incompetence, right, where you don't even know that there's a problem, you really want to start from there and move people towards conscious incompetence where you realize, okay, we have this problem. And it's only after we realize that we have this problem that we can move towards conscious competence where we have a solution and I have to think about solving it. But at least, you know, I can, if I think about it, I can solve it. And eventually as you practice radical product thinking, then, you know, you get to unconscious competence where it just becomes part of how you work and how you think. But I think to your point, unless we we have those discussions about the product diseases we have in-house and we acknowledge those product diseases, it's hard to make progress from, you know, going from unconscious incompetence to that conscious incompetence and then to the conscious competence. Yeah, I think that's the right summary of that. But at the end, the question is, is also, how can we prevent ourselves from getting in that situation in the first place? So what is your advice or what is your idea about enabling or, or encouraging everybody in the organization to stay alert and to pick up on those signals that are out there? Yeah. So excellent question. You know, one of the things that I advocate doing when I work with companies is you start with this vision and then you build a product strategy. But the, the thing is that you have to review it periodically as a team. Yeah. And depending on the stage of company, you know, you'd want to do it more often or less often. So for instance, for a startup, you know, when you build a vision and strategy, really, if you aren't reviewing it at least every quarter, then, you know, you, you're really missing out on revising some of these things and acknowledging what is, what have we learned and what has changed. Whereas in a really mature market, you may find that, you know, reviewing it once every year may be the right frequency for you. So I think the the other part of this is the vision and starting out with that North Star is really important. But the next question is then, how do you translate that into action? And so that's where your product strategy comes in. And so product strategy answers four questions. The first is, what is it that people engage with? You know, meaning what is, why does anyone ever engage with your product? What's the pain point that they're solving through your product that is right? The second question is, okay, so what's the design in your product or what's the functionality that's solving this pain point? 
Yeah. The third then is what's what are the capabilities that you need to be able to fulfill the promise of this design? And the last is logistics, meaning how are you going to price it? How are you going to service it, support it? What are your sales channels, etc.? So when you answer these four questions, that's a really comprehensive way of thinking about your product strategy. And this is really what we need to review as a leadership team regularly. Because, you know, as you point out, things might change in terms of technology. So we might have certain pain points for solving. We know we have a current approach for how we're solving it in terms of functionality, maybe that's solving it. But our over time, maybe new technologies emerge. And so, you know, under capabilities, we might say, you know, we used to have this on-premise solution to be able to give this functionality to our users. But now in terms of capabilities to fulfill on the promise of the design, we now have these other options for how we could do it, maybe using cloud or AW and, and so on, right? And so basically, by by thinking about that and then also the details around how you price it, your sales channels, etc. Those are things that are usually left off, you know, oh, it's left out as an afterthought. It yeah. becomes something where we say, you know, first I'll design the product and I'll put it to market and then I'll figure out, you know, the service and sales channels, et cetera. And this is where we sometimes discover we've launched something and you know what the business model doesn't quite work well with what we've designed. True. And so product strategy has to be something where by thinking about it comprehensively, we design our business model into the product. Yeah. I agree. And I mean, I like that uh, your, your point about, okay, so we, you're solving a problem. That's the change you try to make. It needs to go from X to Y, but the Y is always moving on because at the end, your customers are changing as well. That's what you need to keep in mind. And then how you solve it doesn't always have to be yeah, the, the best way of solving it since everything is evolving as well. But that again is where these diseases start, these diseases start to, to pop up. Like for example, the locked-in syndrome where you're saying, okay, we have, we have solved this and we've solved this always to the best to, the best possible way, but not acknowledging that the problem can be solved in, in, a, in a completely different way that might be way better than, than before. Exactly. So, so it's really trying to keep honest with yourself as well and challenging yourself. And I think that is indeed good to do it on a, on a regular basis, possibly even quarterly, I, I, I agree. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's for some companies, right, it's a bit of a cultural change to talk about things that transparently and to do this as, you know, group exercises. But, you know, kind of wherever you are in the organizational culture, just taking this approach helps you kind of work through this. And ideally, you really do want everyone, you want this to be a communication tool, not just for yourself. No, that's true. Yeah. It needs to be something that, again, this, that, that creates alignment and drive and energy. Yeah. What about, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether that's one of the diseases you're talking about in your, in your upcoming book, but this whole notion of long-term versus the short-term. Oh, I yeah. love that you bring that up. So that's why. Because one. what I've seen a lot is, I mean, we always, we always say, yeah, the long-term is really, really important. But at the end, the whole organization is measured short-term, the next quarter, the next month. Yes, indeed. So this is probably my favorite product disease, right? In that I see <laughs> this so often. And we call it obsessive sales disorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. 
So, you know, I think for most product managers, the most frequent symptom of this disease is when your salespeople say to you, you know, we can win this deal. All we need to do is just add this one custom feature. Yep, true. And so we say, yes, you know, sounds harmless. And by the end of the year, we're sitting with a stack of contracts and your entire miles, all of your roadmap is driven by, you know, what you have to make good on for these contracts, right? Yeah. So that's obsessive sales disorder. But, you know, that's one form, right? But typically you're constantly in your product decisions having to trade off vision versus survival, right? Because vision, you know, you want to sometimes do the right thing by your users, but maybe, you know, let's say that means that you have to, maybe that means that you're going to have to spend some time refactoring your, your code because it's such a mess, right? So that's helping you towards your vision. But in terms of survival, it means you don't have any new features to show for it, Maybe that's not helping you short term. And so this is where, you know, very often it becomes hard to make those decisions because whenever what happens often in agile teams, right? I found that it's really easy to make the, the decisions where it's small amounts of work that add lots of value right? Or medium amounts of work that add lots of value. And it's also easy to decide not to do things that add little value, right? And take up lots of work. The hard decisions are the ones where we know that there's going to be a lot of work and it's going to be a lot of value, but yet like it's hard to take that on in agile. And this is where in terms of how we need to start thinking about it. So we don't incur this constant, you know, giving up on the long-term just for short-term benefits is where we have to think about this as prioritization, where it's your vision versus what I call sustainability. So your vision is your y-axis and sustainability is your x-axis. And so things that are a good vision fit and that help you survive, right? Those are things that are, of course, ideal. Things that are Helping you with survival, like, for instance, these custom features that you're, yep. that'll help you win a deal, that's good for survival, but it's bad for your vision. So that's what I call is helping you build vision debt. Yep. And that's technical debt, except it's on the vision side. And which means we keep building that. And over time, you know, our product just becomes really unfocused. And the opposite of this vision debt is where we're investing in the vision, where, you know, that's the example of the code refactoring. And so what I've started doing is that I use this two by two matrix actually with product teams. And, you know, when, even when we're prioritizing things for sprints, maybe it's sales opportunities. Very often we use this to be able to show, you know, here are where Here's how it falls out on this two by two. What's helping us with the vision and survival versus not. And then at least it helps us acknowledge what we're doing as opposed to just jump into it blindly, right? And then sort of face the consequences afterwards. We very carefully acknowledge that maybe we have to take on this vision debt because, you know, if, if we can't get this, custom, get this deal, maybe we're not going to raise our series A, right? But at least we acknowledge that and then we'll, we'll make good on this afterwards. I agree. And that's wise, wise advice. And too often it's not happening. And it's also, of course, who you have on the table, because if you have indeed, well, sales or management on the table that, that really wants to get that, that next quarter deal, 
you have to have some tough people out there. That's, and that's where alignment comes in. Like, what do we really stand for? So the question is also like, is this maybe more than just you know, the big thinking about vision-driven product strategy? Has it also got to do with the mindset of the organization? I'll give you an example. What are the phrases that was coined by the What's Next podcast? It was about playing to win versus playing to, to not lose. Playing to win is about, okay, we're growing, let's change something. And the other mindset is playing not to lose is you're starting to go into defense mode and everything is sort of created from the short term and the cost perspective. And I think you need a mindset as an organization that is about growth and about the long term in order to make those decisions much more effective. Agree? Yeah, definitely. Exactly. And I think that's where, you know, going back to your vision, that's where unless you have that sort of a longer term view and kind of what's the change you're trying to create, you're exactly right. You know, you're not even starting to play to win without thinking about this long term, right? Yeah. Yeah. I really like, you know, how you describe it. Yeah, it's, it's very true. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down it's, it's to that circle, you know, and how do you get out of that circle? And I think a lot of organizations out there are struggling with that. That may bring me back to the, sort of the beginning of the podcast where you said, this is not about a business model, this is about a movement. And I like that. So how do you believe we can get this movement to, to grow? What should we do different as an advice, for example, to executives? Yeah. So in terms of growing the movement, like one of the things that I really want us to do is define our, our product success by the change that we're trying to bring. Right. And I think especially as business leaders, right, very often our vision is about very often I've seen vision statements saying, you know, to let's say, to be the, the leader in data storage and become a billion-dollar company. Exactly. Completely um, inside out. Exactly. What I really want to see is that there'll be some business leaders who see the changes that we're creating in this world through products like, you know, Facebook. We have more, you know, more revolutionary technology with, you know, AI, gene editing, etc., we have the potential, a tremendous potential to change people's lives. We'll always face business pressures. And so unless we start thinking about vision-driven products that aim to create the right change that we actually intend in the world, generally we'll find that we're creating accidental changes. And that's what I want to prevent. And so this movement is about getting business leaders to realize the tremendous potential we have to change people's lives through our products and yeah, use their vision as a counterbalance to business objectives. Very nicely said. And I think if you do that right, that is going to, to drive that, that demand in the marketplace where people want to deal, deal with you because you are solving their problem in, in a way that exceeds their expectations. It's not something that is a lucky shot. It's something that is actually designed to be. And that will bring you the revenue and as a consequence, the profit in order to make your business goals as well. Exactly. You know, I love the example of DuckDuckGo, right? They yeah. are a profitable company and they have a clear North Star. They care about privacy. And so, you know, they're doing well. And I find that to be a truly vision-driven product. And I think that's the kind of responsibility that we need to recognize. And I, I love what you said. We don't have to do it out of altruism. No. 
we can do it, you know, because it makes good business sense. But to be truly customer centric, we have to recognize the responsibility we actually have towards customers. And that's what it really means to be vision driven. And that's why it's a movement, because it's a movement of leaders recognizing the responsibility that we have towards end users. Agree. That's what gives you fans, not just customers. And that's, I think, the, the ultimate goal or the ultimate testimony or the, or the proof point that your vision is actually making an impact. And once that is happening, then the rest becomes so much easier. Exactly. Yeah. This was really inspiring. So what is next for you? On Radical Product Thinking, I'm working on a book and I expect it to come out in early 2021. And I'll be able to announce the publisher, etc. next year in 2020. Okay. That's good. And that's something to strive for so that the, the word can go out. But of course, you have different means of getting in contact. So where can people get to know more about radical products and connect with you? So the first is, you know, the, the toolkit, the radical product toolkit is free, very deliberately. And you can download that for free from radicalproduct.com. There's also the blog, which is accessible from the website. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter. On Twitter, I'm at Radhika Dat. Very good. Well, thank you very much. This was inspiring. I mean, this is like, like I said earlier on, this is dear to my heart. It's, it's elements of this are also part of what I've been writing about in my upcoming book. I think we are both on that journey to inspire leaders out there to, to start doing things in a different way. Yeah, exactly. I'm looking forward to your book as well, Don. You will get a copy as soon as it's published. That's going to be early February as, as far as I can see right now. So thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. And I hope my audience enjoyed it as much as I did. And talking about that, for those that are listening, please share what your thoughts are about this episode and whether you have any questions. And if you like it, by the way, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Beyond that, thank you for tuning in. I had the honor to speak to Radhika Dut, co-founder of the Radical Product Thinking Movement. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So. With this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in, and you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, 
Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.